Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. We are seeing storms in the Middle East, an acute hurricane in Ukraine, while China represents climate change. That is the weather chart of world security, as seen by defence intelligence, who've just given us an unprecedented insight into their work. Sean will tell us what she saw and learned. Also on SITREP, another warning from MPs that the forces are overstretched and underfunded. But this time, they offer an alternative solution. Cut your expectations to manage the workload. You've got the Defence Secretary talking about a pre-war phase. Now, in that scenario, you need to ensure that you're spending your time and your focus and your resources on the most critical threats. We'll talk to the UK's first national security advisor about whether it could work. And how do you become an RAF fighter jet display pilot? We meet the man who's just been appointed to show off typhoon manoeuvres to the world. I mean, who wouldn't want to do the typhoon display looking at it? I really wanted to fly it, seeing some of the manoeuvres they pulled in previous seasons, just Max performing the jet. Zidrev with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. We've talked a lot about defence intelligence over the last couple of years, Mike. Before that, they rarely got much of a mention, despite a long history. Yes, that's right. Uh, because it was the intelligence that flowed in from the, the armed services, and a lot of it was tactical intelligence, and it still is, of course, concerned with what uh, is going on on a given operation. But, of course, these days that has an immense value in the bigger intelligence picture. So I think defence intelligence is now being treated more seriously within the intelligence world, but also outside of it as well, which I suspect is why... Uh, Defence Intelligence is interested in um, letting the, the journalistic community have a little look at it occasionally. And one of those people is SITREP's Sean Grescheck, uh, one of a small group of defence journalists invited to visit the heart of Defence Intelligence this week at RF Witten in Cambridgeshire. Sean, um, I was wondering if it's too cliché to ask you whether it's like some kind of James Bond lair, sliding panels revealing control rooms, giant video walls. But, but reading your article, uh, that's roughly what it sounds like? Well, well, Kate, at first, it, it actually all looked very boring in that the room we were taken to uh, after going through security, handing over our phones, promising not to identify anyone, of course, the room we were brought into uh, just looked like a regular conference room. And strangely, we were told not to take a seat at the large table in front of us. Some journalists mm -hmm. did decide to sit down, but they realised very quickly why they'd been told to remain standing all of a sudden, a button was pressed, which revealed secret screens that transformed into <laughs> large windows on a world hardly ever seen by anyone without top secret clearance. And we were overlooking a vast floor plate, as they call it, with clusters of desks of the various different intelligence teams working away. It was absolutely huge. It was mm. a windowless uh, office, a very high ceiling. There was a mix of people wearing military uniforms, wearing plain clothes. 60% of the staff there are military and 40% are civilian. And small red lights had been turned on across a series of pillars and walls down there. And we were very quick to ask what they were. It was a, a warning, essentially, to everyone hard at work down there that a bunch of journalists were not only in the building, but uh, <laughs> watching them. And I'd spotted one of the military spies that had briefed us earlier in the day who looked up towards us. And we must have looked like a bunch of eager tourists pressed up against the glass trying to take in every detail. 
Yeah, I suppose like the red light, like you're, you're on air to the people inside. Um, Sean, um, the, the work that's done there, extremely sensitive. You talked about handing over your mobile phone and not identifying people. Just how tightly controlled were things and, and what other limits can you tell us about? Well, everything was carefully choreographed. They they certainly kept a close eye on all of us to make sure no one was wandering off, not that you would uh, get very far if you tried. And there was no way that they would let us anywhere near close enough to be able to read what was on the, the live feeds and the computer screens down in that newsroom area. Um, and they said it's the biggest top secret floor plate dedicated to intelligence analysis, specifically for the Five Eyes countries. So the, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they were all having people, you know, in that building working alongside UK defence officials there. The countries, of course, have shared intelligence since since World War II, and all of their flags were displayed outside of the building that we were in. And what was really interesting was that they explained that teams work in day and night shifts where countries hand over to each other. So it's a 24-7, 365 days a year of intelligence sharing and intelligence cover. And it's called the Pathfinder Building. And the site is steeped in history because RF Witten is where the first sorties were flown from just 90 minutes after World War II was declared. And there was what looked like a, a real-time feed of a ship, but it was playing on loop on one of the screens. And the title of the video, every time it restarted, said uh, Port of Sudan. I could mm. see flags representing each of the single services displayed on the walls. And we were told that any questions on intelligence for the entirety of defence, you know, this is where it comes to first. And the newsroom, as they refer to it, is is called their jewel in the crown. They, they were clearly very proud of, of the work that goes on there. And what did they let you see exactly? What kind of work? Well, we had a very sobering brief uh, about China's hypersonic missile capabilities and how work is being done on how to produce things to, to counter those threats. These missiles can travel at least five times faster than the speed of sound, which makes them very difficult to destroy once they're launched. So it's, it's clear that there was a focus on responding to that, and that was taking up a lot of their time and effort. But we were taken into a hangar and beneath camo nets, we were shown a Russian Orlan 10 drone and an Iranian Shahed 131 drone um, that had been used against the Ukrainians. And we met the analyst whose job it is to be taking those apart to learn as much as they can about them. And we were told these had been gifted to defence intelligence by the Ukrainians and some were still in their plastic evidence bags. We heard from open source intelligence experts. They delivered us a brief revealing how much information they have to analyze. And I asked about how complex the verification process for open source material is, you know, for that, but also intelligence in general, you know, given the advancements in technology and the ability to deep fake material. And the officials we spoke to confirmed that it is very complex when dealing with open source material, but they're now, they feel that they are holding their own, they said, when it comes to mainstream intelligence, reminding me that, of course, deception has always been par for the course. Um, there was also mm -hmm. an emphasis on the importance of their work in the cyber and electromagnetic spheres, highlighting the significance of understanding these types of threats, you know, enabling countermeasures as well. Mike, um, sounds like defence, well, we know defence intelligence has a lot on its plate at the moment, doesn't it? 
Yes, it does. And um, I mean, this facility is obviously, it's all about joining the dots. I mean, if you look at, you know, the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union collapsed, that was a surprise. And, you know, then 9-11 was a great surprise. 7th of October attacks uh, on Israel were a huge surprise. And it immediately emerges that quite a lot was known about these events beforehand, but nobody joined the dots. And so this sort of facility and what defense intelligence does from the ground up is to to try to join the dots so that you're not taken by surprise. I mean, the DI used to be um, in the old war office before the Ministry of Defense sold it off. And that going in there, you know, was like it was like going into faulty towers um, because it was it was like a big hotel where you couldn't get anywhere because there were there were sort of glass panels everywhere that you didn't have access to go through. So you went in these peculiar routes to the rooms you were allowed to go to. It was a very sort of maladjusted building for what it was trying to do and the importance of the work it was taking place there. But this facility at Witten is obviously it is a bit James Bondish as I understand it because it's it's where they bring everything together to join the dots early on Mm. and that's the essence of what i think they're trying to do so sean uh, what is taking up most of their effort then well they summed it up using a weather analogy to describe the current global situation that you mentioned you know as having storms in the middle east an acute hurricane in ukraine and that china represented climate change so lots of things simultaneously uh, taking up their effort um in terms of their broad assessments from their intelligence gathering, they were very much tying in with the messages we've been hearing from the Defence Secretary that we're in a pre-war era. They were warning we must start preparing for a large-scale conflict, which could be with Russia or others at some point in the future, and that the demands on defence intelligence are much more complex and more varied in 2024, and that we're living in dangerous times. And they stressed that Russia is still a very potent force. And Mike mentioned the uh, October 7th attacks there. There was a recognition when we were talking to defence intelligence officials, uh, you know, of the significant lessons that are going to be drawn from that and an admission that the greatest risk in intelligence is when you think you know your enemy um, and and an acceptance that an attitude of groupthink has to be avoided. And they actually told us that they have a team of psychologists whose job it is to assess the psyches of their adversaries, which I Mm. found really interesting. And and that all ties into them trying to avoid that groupthink mentality, which leads to huge mistakes. And the vast majority of their resources, they said, are focused on threats emanating from overseas, which pose a threat to the UK and recognise that they really do have their work cut out for them. Yeah, really fascinating. Mike, um, defence intelligence doesn't sit in isolation, does it? How does it fit into the UK-wide intelligence gathering operation? Yeah, well, it's one of the four big units. So there is MI5, which deals with internal security, MI6, which does foreign intelligence, secret intelligence service, GCHQ, which, of course, works very closely with the United States as the the great listening post, and then defense intelligence. So it it sits into that um, foursome, as it were. And the thing about defense intelligence is it was always politically rather the poor relation because five and six used to have quite a lot of, of influence in government and, of course, GCHQ is a big, big organization that's always you know, done very valuable work. But the thing about defense intelligence is that numerically, the, 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 it's far and away the biggest analytical unit in the whole intelligence world. So although uh, within the UK, other organizations have uh, you know, political clout in the judgments that they make, DI 
was always the, the biggest analytical unit that British intelligence could draw on. And I think it's only recently, relatively recently, that that has been recognised and that the, mm. the whole machinery really wants to draw on that analytical ability. It was, a bit, it was a bit patchy in the past. It has been patchy, but it's much better now than it, than it used to be. Uh, so, Sean, h- how much were you able to actually talk to the men and women doing the work on the shop floor? Well, we met quite a few from a range of departments throughout the day. And one thing that stood out was that we were told that there was a genuine air of trepidation sweeping through the building. I mean, they spend their whole careers avoiding journalists and now they have to <laughs> brief a whole pack of them and answer answer questions at the end of their brief. So, and they, they shared some real life I find that so hard examples. to believe, Sean. I feel it's so hard to believe <laughs> given the jobs they actually do. You're very scary then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think what it was is that those that were chosen to have to, to come in and, and brief us and sit in front of us, they knew that at the end of their official presentation, so to speak, there were about 20 of us that were then going to throw in whatever questions we wanted. So there were, mm. there were moments where they were looking at their higher ups as to, am I allowed to answer this question or, or should I refer to you? Um, but they did share some real life examples of, of how they, of, of what they've been involved in and particularly what they've been proud of. And one operative uh, whose story stood out, um, I have to ask you a question before I tell you the full story. Do you know what an Orlov Trotter is? <laughs> no, it sounds like a racehorse. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, sorry. Uh, Mike, you're on to it. It's definitely a horse. I certainly hadn't heard of them. And uh, I think many people in the room, their ears pricked up because we thought we'd misheard. But the work that this particular person um, helped uh, work on, uh, he revealed an arms for horses deal that was done between Russia and North Korea, which hit the headlines back in November 2022. It passed me by, but apparently 30 thoroughbred horses, specifically all of trotters, beautiful white horses, if you want to take a look, were shipped via cargo train to North Korea after Pyongyang shipped Moscow some um, artillery shells. And he spoke of his pride in working on the investigation and the significance of that intelligence that proved the intent of both nations in, in striking that deal. But yes, I certainly didn't expect to hear a story in, involving horses um, as part of uh, the briefing sessions. But we also had briefings from uh, human intelligence uh, operatives, you know, and, and them we met some agent handlers. And, and these guys basically go out into the world. They seek out information pass that back once they verified it and that can then feed into to operations and uh, one handler spoke of his involvement in stopping IED attacks in Afghanistan after intelligence that he gathered uh, through human intelligence on that. Sean, really interesting. Thank you so much. And you can read more about Sean's visit to Defence Intelligence on our news website, forces.net. Now, the assessments given by Defence Intelligence during Shan's visit just add to a growing set of warnings that this is now a world where we need to be ready for the possibility of war. But once again, we have a warning from MPs on the Commons Defence Committee that the UK's armed forces don't have what they need to fight a high-intensity war. Their latest report points to shortages of people and equipment and warns of overstretch. The response from the Ministry of Defence says our armed forces are always ready to protect and defend the UK and we continue to meet all our operational commitments. Uh, Mike, it feels like we've seen this all before. Have we just become immune to these kind of warnings and responses? Well, I think we've had a, a lot of warnings in the past, but it's like, you know, Hemingway uh, said in The Sun Also Rises, somebody said, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, well, I went bankrupt in two ways, first gradually, then suddenly. 
And the warnings we've had over the last 10 years, really, are the gradually part. And suddenly, now we're into the, that, that, this other phase where there are some critical shortages. And we can't do even the things that we would want to do, even in this phase that we're in. So, you know, HMS Diamond has left um, the Red Sea now. We can't replace it with another daring class Type 45 destroyer because we have six. Three of them are in midlife update. We've only got three. The, the other two are doing other things. And so we have to replace it with a, a frigate, a Type 23, which is okay, but not ideal for the job. And so even in the rather limited operations that we're undertaking, we are now not able to do them in the way that we would want to. So it's fairly obvious we're now into the, into the rapid phase of the problem. And I think everyone's woken up to that, but nothing will change until after the, an election. But there is one thing that stands out from the Defence Committee's recommendations. They say, yes, the problem needs more money to be fixed. But this time, the committee offers a stark alternative, a strictly adhered to prioritisation ranking for the work of the armed forces drawn up within the National Security Council, or to put it another way, setting a clear red line on how much work we give the forces. Lord Ricketts was the UK's National Security Advisor when the NSC was formed in 2010. So what does he make of the idea that it should prioritise what the forces do? Well, I'm 100% in support of it. I've long thought that strategy in the end is about choosing because there are any number of things that a country like the UK could do, our armed forces could do, but our resources are finite. And what this report tells us is that we have both capability shortfalls, difficulties in recruiting, um, insufficient stockpiles for uh, what they call war fighting. The answer to that can't be a great deal more money in the short term, given the budget situation in the UK. So the answer is uh, prioritising and choosing the most important strategic issues and concentrating on those. And if the National Security Council were asked to prioritise the work of the forces to take pressure off right now, where could they choose to ease that pressure? I think we have to look at the centre of gravity of the UK's national security, which is in and around Europe, and therefore give priority to the war in Ukraine, to the support we've been giving to the NATO mission in Estonia, and readiness of our armed forces for whatever else may come. I fear the Indo-Pacific tilt, which was always more a slogan than a strategy, uh, is not something we can afford to do at the same time. So what exactly should we stop doing, do you think? Well, I think we should uh, look at issues like uh, carrier deployments to the Far East. I think we have to look very critically at all our different training missions around the world. There are a lot of them, uh, but they do consume manpower and command and airlift support, of course, and concentrate on the missions associated with stability in Europe. And I would put top of that agenda everything to do with Ukraine. The National Security Council already has a role in setting out defence priorities at the very top level. Just how far down does that reach? In the end, it has to be ministers who set the priorities and make the choices. Um, I would like to see the National Security Council meeting more often under the Prime Minister's chairmanship to set those priorities. And we have to think very carefully, for example, about how much we can get involved in the conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, the Royal Air Force, of course, has been taking part in the strikes on the Houthis. Um, but we cannot afford to be involved in too many separate military missions at the same time. If the priorities are clear from the top, then I think the armed forces have a roadmap as to how to deploy the resources that they have available. 
So do you think that the UK is overstretching itself at the moment by trying to do too much? I'm afraid it is, yes. Uh, I think there's a very laudable tendency uh, on the part of the UK Armed Forces to volunteer for every mission, to make sure that the UK is part of whatever is going on. Um, but we have to recognise the fact, as this Defence Committee report sets out very graphically, that our capabilities are lagging far behind our ambitions. And that's a signal, particularly to ministers, to help the armed forces to choose the things that really matter. And let me point, for example, to the peacekeeping battalion in Cyprus, which has been there 30 or 40 years, no doubt doing valuable work. But really, is that the priority for UK armed forces to be in a peacekeeping mission between the north and south of Cyprus? So I think a hard look needs to be taken at all those legacy missions and to uh, remove some of them so that the armed forces can concentrate on today's priorities. Is that one then in particular that you would suggest to remove then the peacekeeping mission in Cyprus or Britain's contribution to it? I've long felt that, honestly, for the UK's main contribution to United Nations peacekeeping to be a battalion in Cyprus, uh, where, yes, there have been tensions, but not really for the last couple of decades, and is really not the priority for the use of high-capability UK uh, armed forces. That is one that the UK could step away from, I think. And there are no doubt others. I would look in the various training missions around the world to see what the UK really has to do and what we could perhaps get others to do. Where, where else then? Well, I don't have in my mind the list of all the different things that the UK armed forces are up to. But there are training missions in Africa, for example, which again, are no doubt doing very good work. But is that the top priority for the country? Uh, I would mm. question that. Lord Ricketts, the Defence Committee are giving ministers a very stark binary choice, either spend significantly more on our military capability or scale back your military ambitions. Are those really the options then? Well, you know, I think that it's probably both the above rather than a choice between them, because I think even if we scale back some of the operational commitments of the armed forces, we are still going to need a significant uplift in defence spending, not least to re-equip the army. Uh, the Air Force and the Navy have done quite well over the last decade in terms of capital spending. The Army have been the Cinderella organization since the Afghan and Iraq conflicts, and largely they have legacy equipment from that period. So I think we need both a scaling back of the global uh, ambitions and also an uplift to make the Army really capable of war fighting, which is what the uh, Defence Select Committee recommends, um, in the next five to ten years. And if we are going to have to make hard priority decisions, is having our own nuclear deterrent still worth it? Well, that's a perennial question, and it's a, a highly political question for ministers. I've always felt that if we were starting from a blank sheet of paper, we didn't have it, we wouldn't decide to spend the money to have it today. But since we do have it, since we have a long tradition uh, of uh, continuous at sea deployment, uh, I think there's in this uncertain world, the balance of the arguments is for keeping it rather than for giving it up. And we've heard the Defence Secretary warning that we're in a pre-war era. The Defence Committee says our war-fighting readiness is in doubt. How real do you believe the threat of war is for the UK? I think we have to be a bit careful about the rhetoric we use. Um, I was a bit uncomfortable with talking about a pre-war period. Uh, remember that NATO is uh, the absolute fundamental of our security. And in a way, the Ukraine war, Putin's assault on Ukraine, has shown the value of NATO because Putin has not dared put a boot over the, uh, the uh, frontier of a NATO member state. So we have a very powerful deterrence in NATO. Uh, therefore, I don't think we're on the, on the 
brink of a war. I think this is the late 1930s, um, but we are in a much more troubled world and you can't rule out um, other conflicts even on our continent. Therefore, you need the armed forces to be capable of deploying without necessarily suggesting that you know the UK is facing an imminent world war, which I think is an exaggeration. And in that much more troubled world, would it be a greater risk scaling back our military ambition or expecting too much of the military uh, that we have? I think the worst thing to do is to do nothing about the capabilities and the resourcing of the military, but to keep the current level of tasking. Because as the Defence Select Committee brings out so clearly, you're then in a downward spiral where more and more is required of fewer and fewer people, and that accelerates the departure of trained people from the armed forces. So I agree with the report we have to break out of that spiral, both by reducing the commitments and also, over time, rebuilding the defence budget and trying to close that gap which is always opening up between what the military want to buy and the budget they have. Lord Ricketts, Peter Ricketts, thank you very much. Thank you. So, Mike, how would the forces feel, do you think, about a cabinet committee setting their task in a much more hands-on way? Well, in theory, I mean, that should already be happening. The National Security Council should do that to set the, uh, the, the both the strategy and then implement the strategy. But if, I mean, the fact is, the National Security Council has become more or less moribund, to be honest. I mean, my understanding is it's met very few times in the last 12 months. And what's happened, of course, it's all gone back into Downing Street, uh, which is where it came from in the first place. And what happens then, of course, is that Downing Street takes a big role in when there's a crisis, like the beginning of the Ukraine war or the Gaza a crisis so that everything gets centralized but everything else that isn't a crisis then as it were runs on autopilot and that's that's where we are and i think peter ricketts is absolutely you know spot on you know his book hard choices is a very good read for the exactly the sort of reason that he mentions there you know he's a very polite mild-mannered man yes. but my goodness he, he really sets out the hard choices with a sort of a hard-edged uh, realism which is hard to quarrel with and mm. you know he's making it very clear that you know, Britain is good at operations. We do operations. We we are busy for the sake of it. We volunteer for everything for all sorts of reasons. But actually, there's a difference between going on operations and preparing for war fighting. And if we have to put it in a word, we have to say right: fewer operations, prepare for war fighting, in the hope that by being able to fight a war, we will deter the war we really don't want. Yeah, my, it struck me as well that Peter Ricketts, I mean, he says the toughest things, but in the politest of ways. Mm. Um, I wouldn't I mean, like you to said, be interrogated by him, you know. And then I, if, me neither. If I, was, if I was tied to a chair in a, in a dark room <laughs> with a light on my face, his soft, polite voice would scare the willies <laughs> out of me. Yeah, me too. Um, and you said this before, Micah, it's either significantly more money or expecting less, but they're both politically really tough, aren't they? Is there anything that will make our political leaders grasp the nettle, apart from Peter to Ricketts and make that choice? Well, I think it's it's going to happen this year, Kate, because 2024 is a really important year. We've got our own election coming up, we guess, in now probably in October. But so much is going to happen this year. I mean, in Ukraine, um, this is a big, big year for Ukraine. And if the war goes fundamentally against Kiev, we will see the effect of that in Russian behavior elsewhere in the world. The Russians are on a, a I mean, very assertive now in Africa. Look at what's happening in uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, look at what's happening across the Sahel. The Wagner Group has, has been reconstituted under the Rodvardia, the, the internal police in, uh, in uh, Russia. And I, I think this year will be so scary in terms of our own uh, security in Europe 
that I, that I think may certainly shift public opinion, which I think is already shifting, and it may shift political opinion. Although, as I said before, you know, because we've got an election coming coming up in October, nothing fundamental will change until after that election. But I think defence will get talked about in this election more than we might have expected 12 months ago. This is Zitrap. Now, finally this week, a dream military job that only one British serviceman or woman can hold at a time. Wowing crowds with aerial loops, rolls, vertical departures and turns at hundreds of miles an hour in a plane that is the backbone of UK air defence and ground attack operations. There is only one RAF Typhoon display pilot who gets to perform these stunts at air shows. And this year's pilot has just been revealed. I'm Flight Lieutenant David Turnbull and I'm the 2024 Typhoon Display Pilot. Turbo is what everyone calls me and always has. A lot of my close friends don't even know my name's David actually. This is definitely a pinch me moment starting the Typhoon Display. It's such an honour and a privilege to fly the display this year. I know there's so many people that would want to do it and I'm like standing on the, the backs of giants really who are helping me out with the display this year. So yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to do it and uh, yeah, I hope everyone else is as well. Is this a lifelong dream for you or something that just sort of came about? I wanted to join the military from a young age because of like the outdoor lifestyle, not working in an office potentially. And when I was about 16, 17, I got a flight in a Tiger Moth at Duxford and I knew going for pilot then was absolutely what I wanted to do. I joined the RF when I was 18 years old, straight from my A-levels and went through flying training. During that time, we did a few holds, waiting for the next training course. I was lucky enough to spend two seasons of that hold at BBMF, the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. And actually, it was the D-Day 70th anniversary when I was holding at BBMF, which is quite apt because it's the 80th anniversary this year. So I got to be with BBMF for the 70th and the display with the 80th. So yeah, it's quite exciting. From those holds, then I went into uh, fast jet. So we get streamed after our elementary flying training, got streamed fast jet uh, and then flew uh, Tucano's at Linton on Ooze, which is a great base, uh, and it was a really fun aircraft to fly. Uh, and from there to Valley to fly the Hawk T2. Yeah, and then you're really getting into the jet side of things, uh, much faster, good fun as well. Uh, and from there to Typhoon. So on Typhoon, I went through 29 on the OCU about six years ago now. Uh, and then I've been at RAF Lossiemouth for three years before coming back down here as an instructor. So that's my uh, career so far. What can we expect from your displays? Are you doing any new manoeuvres? Yeah, so all our manoeuvres are approved um, beforehand uh, in our group orders. So it's just putting those manoeuvres into a sequence that, that works really well. So the important thing is to link the manoeuvres well. Uh, there's a couple of new things coming up. Obviously they might be tweaked as I uh, work down to display height. So look forward to the slow speed pass. I think that'll be good. And there's some uh, negative G maneuvers, which although feel awful for me, hopefully will look good for you. How do you feel about your display? Are you confident, are you happy? Yeah, confident. I've uh, only flown it live once so far, uh, but we're gonna be working down the heights. Uh, but I absolutely loved it. I loved the, the G and how the maneuvers linked together. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And this must be a whole new type of flying to what you're used to. What's it like to really sort of experiment with what the aircraft can do? Yeah, it's strange. Um, what I would say is that when we fly normally, the, the combat that we do, we call it BFM, basic fighting manoeuvres, that is max performing the jet. And 
it's a shame because people can't see what that's like. So the display is almost me showing what the aircraft can do, how it performs in a, in a fight. So we do get to max perform the aircraft, but most of the time it's in a competitive way against another uh, aircraft, usually for training. Obviously in the display, you're kind of, you know your maneuvers, you're trying to complete them, but if you're fighting someone else, then you've got to react to what they do and mix it up and that can either go really well or really badly. <laughs> And in terms of sort of applying yourself to be the new display pilot, like it's quite a selection process. What made you sign up to try out for it? Yeah, so we take we take instructors from 29 Squadron when we're applying for the display. I'd obviously seen people like Sainty Paddy do the display before and how good that could be. So it was easy to decide to go for it. The display selection itself then, we did a simulator test where we flew someone else's display from a previous year and we also did a, an interview which was quite funny because it's the first time i think i've been interviewed since i joined the RAF. so someone will ask me what you think of the display rules like the warrant might ask you about discipline when you're going away on display it was a tough process but also quite enjoyable what was it that you saw in the other pilots that you were like yeah i want to do that i mean who wouldn't want to do the typhoon display looking at it i really wanted to fly it was the main thing so seeing some of the maneuvers they pulled in previous seasons just max performing the jet I fancied having a go at that um, and it's also something different from the norm. Um, I'm still an instructor on 29 so instruct uh, all the way up until the summer and maybe sometimes during. Uh, so it's just it's, it's something different and it's awesome. Hand on heart, I can honestly say I really would not want to do that. That was uh, Flight Lieutenant David Turnbull, Turbo to his friends, who also now know he's called David too. He was talking to SITREP's Kirsty Chambers. And Mike, when you see the typhoon flying these aerobatics, it can be breathtaking. And of course, the red arrows are world famous. But if we go back to our last conversation about prioritising the work of the forces, can they last? Uh, well, I think they can in the way that they're doing it on 29 Squadron and the way that David Turnbull's doing it because they are, they're showing what the aircraft can do and that's an important part of relating to the public. You know, it's quite hard to relate jet aircraft to the general public because they operate in such a, a different environment to, say, ground or naval forces. And, mm -hmm. you know, some of those manoeuvres, and we talked about the negative G uh, manoeuvres, um, are amazing. And, you know, to see an aircraft that goes so fast more or less stand still in the sky, you know, it's not a vertical takeoff aircraft or anything like that but they can almost they can put their nose right up and sit on their engine and just stand still and just mm. sort of you know shimmy forward i found that absolutely astonishing whether one would ever do that in combat i've no idea but you know there is no prize for coming second in aerial combat uh, and yeah. so they these aircraft have to be flown to the edge of their capabilities and that's what the displays try to offer you've seen some Oh yes! Oh gosh! I go back. Uh, I go back some years. I remember the Red Pelicans because you know there used to be a, a number of different display teams. Now there's only the Red Arrows who are the mm. the display team. But back in the early sixties, Central Flying School used to have the Red Pelicans, and they were flying mm. jet provosts. And you know, in those days, they didn't have. I mean, he took, David uh, Turnbull taught there about the rules and the allowable manoeuvres where there are crowds involved and you've got to go over the sea mm. and so on. You know, that's why the Sunderland Air Show is very popular because part of it's over the sea. But in those days. 
days. I used to go to Cosford and Gaydon when I was crazy about aeroplanes as a, a young teenage boy. Yeah. And I remember seeing the, the Red Pelicans do a sort of a starburst where these jet provosts sort of came diving down, four of them, and then they all peeled off. And one mm-hmm. of them sort of came right. I had a cine camera and I was, it was my proudest bit of film. It came literally well below a thousand feet, almost straight past us in the crowd. It was thrilling. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't do that these days. I mean, health and you safety know, no, would turn blue if they saw the red arrows do anything like that. <laughs> you know, what a different career you might have had, Mike. It's so interesting to hear the excitement in your voice there. Oh, <laughs> the red pelicans were something else. Jeff Provost, yeah. <laughs> Mike, great to speak to you as ever. Professor Michael Clark, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. We'll be back with another sit rep next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash sit rep or wherever you download your podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. 